You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. About a mile off the Northumbrian coast in the year 793, monks went about their daily routines in a monastery on the island of Lindisfarne. Unfortunately for the monks, this was not going to be a regular day. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle reads, In this year, fierce foreboding omens came over the land of the Northumbrians, and the wretched people shook. There were excessive whirlwinds, lightning, and fiery dragons were seen flying in the sky. These signs were followed by a great famine, and a little after those, that same year, on the sixth Ides of January, the ravaging of wretched heathen men destroy God's church at Lindisfarne. A scholar who was in Charlemagne's court at the same time described, Never before has such a terror appeared in Britain as we have now suffered from a pagan race. The heathens poured out the blood of saints around the altar and trampled on the bodies of the saints in the temple of God like dung in the streets. The monastery at Lindisfarne was founded about 160 years earlier in the 630s by St. Aidan, who came from Ireland as a missionary to the Anglo-Saxons. In 685, the great St. Cuthbert spent his final years at the monastery as the bishop of Lindisfarne. The island, which today is called the Holy Island, was decimated by Viking raids on that day in 793. This raid marks the beginning of a new era in Anglo-Saxon history, the Viking Age. Welcome to the History of Modern Politics. My name is Chris Spangle. That voice that you heard is Matt Whitliff. And today we are discussing the Vikings and the King of the English, a major development in the history of Britain here on the History of Modern Politics. This is episode six, but if you are uh, hearing this in the free feed, there are all kinds of episodes seven, eight, nine, ten are already available at historyofmodernpolitics.com or to We Are Libertarians Plus members. So please go check that out and make sure you sign up. You'll also get show notes, our reading lists, which are... Matt, it takes me as much time to put together the reading lists uh, as it does to edit the episode. So uh, there's tons of resources. This is a guide, and the history of modern politics is a guide to help you understand how our modern politics developed through the lens of Britain initially. And our goal is basically just to give you the highlights of history and then help you to take those reading lists and move on to study the things that interest you. And this era is one of my favorites, and Alfred is someone that interests me, and the Viking Age I think is very interesting. Mm-hmm. And Matt, it's so interesting that Netflix made a TV show called The Last Kingdom out of it, yeah. which we both enjoy, and many people, I'm surprised at how many people know that show, and that this kind of tells you the history of that, of that entire series. Yeah, we're going to be right square in the middle of it. Um, I think we'll even we'll reference a couple places of, of how it aligns to episodes in the Last Kingdom here as we go through things today. And so we're we're covering the era w- where we left off uh, in Britain in episode four. Uh, so we'll pick up the dates from about eight twenty five um, only through nine thirty five. We're only going to cover about a hundred years here today as our episodes kind of continue to go through time. Now uh, the time span that we'll cover is going to be a little bit shorter, but you know we've got the legacy of you know one of the most famous English. Kings, uh, Alfred the Great, here today. Isn't it funny that a hundred years in our world, like, feels uh, in our lifetime, feels like forever? But when you're talking about history, it's just the, oh, this is only a hundred years. You know, the last episode we did five hundred. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, why why is this era important, Matt? Well, you know, first we're going to cover the legacy of Alfred the Great, right? And he's 
quote, you know, the great for a reason. His uh, political, religious, educational, legal reforms all really helped mature the kingdom of England uh, into, first of all, a kingdom of England. And out of those clan based tribal societies that we've we've kind of talked about that emerged, you know, kind of evolved into the heptarchy, you know, the, you had kings and over kings and things like that. And, and you know, we're, we're not like squarely a, a hundred years here before this in, in true tribal nature, but, but Alfred takes it kind of the, the next quantum leap forward. And, and probably more importantly, also his, his sons and grandsons, right. Really cement the, um, the infrastructure, if you will, that, that Alfred starts to put into place, but he did have one major thorn in his side, Chris, and that is our friends, the Vikings. Yeah. The Danes or the Norsemen, the Northmen, uh, they come from Scandinavia, which is, as we discussed in episode four, the homelands of the Germanic tribes, so the Angles, the Saxons, the Franks, the Goths, the era that historians refer to as the Viking Age runs from 793, Lindisfarne, to 1066, the Battle of Hastings, when the Normans come in and completely change everything. Uh, while the bookends of this era align to historically British events, in this episode we'll see the impact of Scandinavians in both Britain and France. So we're, we're continuing on when the native British call for help when they're being attacked by Vikings. The Anglo-Saxons move in, and that just kind of continues. People from... The interesting thing about Britain, Matt, is that the Norsemen and the Franks from the south and the even Spaniards, what would be Spain today, like, all move into Britain. There's It's, it's, a, it's a rich area of resources that, that kind of have these convulsions and uh, the kind of the 1066 is the delineator between the tribes and then just the we'll get to the normans but they're psychos <laughs> they're, the, they're the worst of them all and they really like solidify power but this is the beginning of those threads so let's start with Eckbert and uh move you know pick up from episode four where we had the Bretwald Eckbert of wexus um who ended the mercian supremacy so tell us a little bit more about how this all started to develop in 825. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you, if, if you remember from episode four, you know, Mercia, the area kind of in central England, uh, as you think about it today or central Britain, uh, that was really the power center, but Eckbert, uh, defeats the Mercians in, in battle in 825 and kind of creates uh, overlordship of, of the rest of, um, the rest of England at that point, that's the concept of the Bretwalda. And however, it didn't last that long. <laughs> um, you know, a couple of years later, the Mercians, you know, kind of regained that independence. And, you know, kingship wasn't fully hereditary yet at this time, but Egbert was able to make the right alliances and deals and secures the throne for his son, Ethelwolf, uh, in 839. And, and with that alliance, Ethelwolf is controlling both Wessex, uh, which is in the in the south and west, if you recall, and and Kent, which is over in the southeast. And so his oldest son is given Kent to kind of rule as a sub kingdom immediately. And then a few years into his reign, uh, his daughter is given to marriage in, to the king of Mercia to try to continue to form and cement some alliances and strengthen relationships. And interestingly, and and I think this is a theme we'll see through the next episodes. I mean, we think about the the, the dark ages uh, as a time where you know people are just living in like huts and there's no communication or things like that. But no, I mean, King Ethelwolf goes to Rome in in 855. I mean, the concept of pilgrimages, um, 
you know, you'll see sprinkle out here throughout the next two episodes because there, there are people traveling all across the territory that were, you know, all across Europe and into Jerusalem and places like that. Oh yeah. 500 years almost before Christopher Columbus, the, the Vikings were landing in, you know, Northern America. You have 10 that is from Britain in the South of Britain in parts of ancient Greece and in ancient Greece, there's British tin. And so you have uh, a large amount of movement, even even in ancient times. So we call it the Dark Ages because we don't have a lot of written record, which we'll see Alfred start to correct in this episode. But that doesn't mean that human movement stops. People who exist before the 1200s, basically, when you really start yeah. to get a lot of written records, still are moving and convulsing and traveling and exploring and pilgrimaging so that's right i think that the walk to rome you know through the main part of europe wasn't it nine to 14 days depending on your on weather and your strength sure yeah and you had all kinds of like little stops and gas stations basically <laughs> through there so so yeah this is even though it's the dark ages we're technically talking about that it doesn't mean that people stop there is there is movement yeah. So, so Ethelwolf has a few sons and his, his, uh, as we said already, he's given Kent to one of them. He gives his, uh, next oldest son, Ethelbald, king, the, the kingdom of Wessex to, to kind of rule in his absence. And, and by this time, I think the oldest is dead. So Ethelbert, another son is, uh, or Barrett is, is taken as king of Kent. Um, so, he had two other younger sons who had actually already been to Rome and, and spent some of their childhood growing up there. And, and um, you know, so this, again, that connection between England and Rome is and the Pope and all that is already established. And when Ethelwolf returns to England, he asks, or Ethelbald refuses to relinquish Wessex. And that causes he, he, you know, we're on the brink of civil war. So he goes ahead and gives up the Western part to Ethelbald. He kind of sits in the central part and Ethelbert has the Southeast. And when he dies, uh, this all puts Wessex and Kent back into the control of Ethelbert because, you know, the other son has died. Um, now we're ready to hit the events of episode three of season one of the last kingdom <laughs> with, uh, with Ethelbert ruling until his death of 865. And, and now we've got to figure out who's going to be, uh, who's going to be the next king. So none of Ethelwolf's sons so far had any children. So the next oldest, Ethelred, is selected as the next king. Now he dies in 871, which puts us into the last kingdom, like Matt said. And unlike the TV show, there was not a question of succession. There was no other male heirs to make a claim. So the crown passed to Alfred easily. Uh, so always be careful. Like, I, oh, I don't know, but when I watch these shows, I'm always Googling the history. Uh, and the last kingdom is fairly um, terrible when it comes to true history. So the crown passes to Alfred. He's the fifth and the youngest son of Ethelwolf, who should be called the father of kings or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, and go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no go no, ahead. Yeah, I was, I, I was just going to say, so once you start the, the reign of Alfred the Great, um, if you've watched that, you know from our opening, the number one issue facing Alfred's reign is the Vikings. Uh, and... There's a lot of challenges in this period, and the Vikings are one of them. They're called the Great Heathen Army. Uh, there is, a, 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 not not to plug an other podcast, but HistoryHit.TV has a lot of great podcasts, and uh, they just did a great uh, episode on the Great Heathen Army, which I would recommend and I'll put in the show notes. But 
The Viking Raids start in the last 700s again, and as noted in the opening, continued well into the 800s, growing in size and scale. And the threat under Ethelwolf and his first two successors was limited to raiding and occasional battles. They'd go into churches and they'd steal the... The, the wealth that were concentrated yep. in churches mostly. But in 865, the Vikings referred to the Danes, which encompassed Danes, Swedes, and Norwegians, raised a large army with the intent on settling in Britain. Now, there weren't towns, right? Like, so when we mentioned Kent, that's in the bottom right of England for the most part. And that's where most of the power was. But, you know, there, like the city of London was still very small. It was less than 5,000 people at this time. So they want to settle in where you can grow food, and, and that's what they're trying to, to invade. According to some legends, the army was led by four brothers in a response to the execution of their father by a Northumbrian king. Think England up towards Scotland. From 865 until 878, the Danes were largely successful and gained tra- territory and treasure. Now, Alfred's forces defeated them, Matt, at the Battle of Eddington in 878 under the Treaty of Verdo- Vedmore. What? Wedmore, yeah. Wedmore. The Danes agreed to stay out of Wessex, and their leader, Guthrum, converted to Christianity. Right. And and so this establishes the, the time or the, or the policy known as, as the Dane law, right? So so Alfred uh, is, is able to retain Wessex and the, you know, kind of the, the eastern part and the northern part of, of England is, is settled and, and ruled really by by these Danish invader, invaders by by these Vikings, but you you are beginning to see um, the influence of Christianity already taking hold on on the the heathens of the Vikings, right? As they slowly start to convert from from their Norse pagan religions over into Christianity and try to at you know with varying degrees of success over the years <laughs> um, cohabitate and and coexist with with the with the English. Yeah, we tend to think that, oh, well, we have this view of the English, and then the the Vikings come over, and they really meld in together. It's like the Romans, some of the, it, when we talked in previous episodes about former Roman generals becoming, you know, British and British rulers, like you, the, everybody kind of melds together. It's that melting pot concept. So, um, Alfred continues to rule over Wessex and Kent, Think London over to the to the right there with Western Mercia as a sub kingdom, and this is where Alfred's impacts start to really take place. So in the late eighteen eighties or early eighty nine eight nineties, Alfred published the Doom Book. The word Doom comes from the Old English word for law or judgment. So this is really like a book of laws and just kind of codifying what were standards and norms in their culture. Now, Alfred combined the codes of law. That came from Ethelbert of Kent, recall him as the royal convert to Christianity in the early 600s. Ein of Wessex from the late 600s and may have simply borrowed from a later version of Kentish law. And Offa of Mercia, the most illustrious of all Mercian kings, Matt, who corresponded with Charlemagne during his rule in the late 700s. Yeah, we, we didn't get too deep into Offa, but um, in in episode four, but he was in fact you know a, a very powerful Mercian king, and so Alfred combines all of these sources together. He adds in the Ten Commandments uh, and writes you know pretty long 
introductions himself of his kind of view of the law and things like this. So while there had been aspects of written law here and there throughout Britain, th- you know, this is really a consolidation, a unification and, and um, a big step forward in terms of trying to cement written law into uh, English society. Yeah. And he put a great value on the notion of justice and he practiced what he preached when it came to the dispensation of justice and oversight of those who perform justice outside of his court. Uh, there's a great book that I highly recommend called blood feud. Um, because while we're talking about Vikings, like invasions always get the most conversation because that was a terrifying thing for the people of the time. So it's what's written about a lot, but for for the people living at the time, the more immediate threat was blood feuds. So we've talked about this before, but you're still in a a society where you're, you're talking hundreds of people living in a village. You're not talking about cities of tens of thousands. And so you'd have various tribal leadership and they'd war with each other. Or if you're in close contact and you kill somebody's cousin, they're allowed to come and, and kill you or do what they want yeah. with you. And so justice is meted out. Um, really by vengeance. And so the blood feuds in this period start to to really like, and, and this book really does a great job of telling some of the stories um, by Richard Fletcher uh, about how much of a threat it is to the cohesion of the kingdom and how intense it is. Even into the 1200s, the death toll, like if you're in, if you live in London now, one in 100,000 people is the death rate. In the 1200s, which is almost double, like you know, we're in the 800s. The death rate was 50 out of 1,000. In London, it was 100 out of 100,000. So it's, your death rate is incredibly high, and violence is incredibly high, and Alfred sees this as a threat and starts to really consolidate the law to administer justice as a way of diffusing the vengeance policies of tribal government and, and trying to make it more fair, because... Just because you think Matt killed my cousin, it doesn't mean that Matt did kill my cousin, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, and, and the notion of a were guild, I think, you know, that comes up in the the Last Kingdom series, and um, you know, it, it comes from the Germanic heritage of you know, if you commit a crime or kill somebody, there's a certain amount of payment that you have to give to the family, and sometimes it was pretty hard to make that payment. Yeah. Which, if you can't make that payment, then you know, vengeance often becomes uh, the next best thing. And, and there and so, are, and we talked are, about, yeah, there Alfred. aren't, and there aren't prisons either. Like, there, no, if you no. committed a crime, you paid a fine and you moved on, and that that existed till. Henry II and the Plantagenets, um, but there weren't prisons. You you got caught stealing. You got your hand cut off. So. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And and like we said, Alfred practicing when he pe- preached. Um, you know, he still the king holds kind of um, the oversight of, of justice throughout the land. So as he's uh, you know um, giving the right to to perform justice to lower officials and things like that, if they don't do it the way that he wants, it's not like he goes and kills them, but he does remove them from from their post and and really is like we said trying to reinforce this notion of of justice. So the next big um, you know contribution that Alfred makes to, to history and is is promoting the formal use of the English language, right? So uh, the church is in, in the the legal code still remains mostly Latin, but the knowledge of Latin by this time is is you know continuing to decrease even amongst the nobility. Um, and so Alfred 
makes the steps to take up, set up court schools, uh, schools in his court, right, uh, to teach English. The Doom Book is written in English, uh, and there's a lot of other projects, including his most ambitious project, that is written in English as well. Should we take like one minute to explain what a court is? Because I think this, yeah. this you know, as it starts to develop in this period, it's it's going to become more common. Tell us, like, briefly, what does it mean to be in Alfred's court? Yeah, I mean, the court is essentially the uh, the the household, if you will, uh, within the palace, right? So it's it's again not just. I think we talked briefly about this around Charles Martel. Um, it's not like the immediate family of the king, but it's all of his uh, retinue, if you will, right? The the people who are helping administer day to day operations of the palace. It's people who are you know related closely to to the um, uh, to the royal family. It is often then some of the, the even the high-ranking nobles who are from that same region might also live in the palace. So, so this entire kind of administrative apparatus of, you know, running the kingdom, if you will, is, you know, quote unquote, the court. Yeah. And eventually once we get into the Tudor era and, you know, Louis in the 1600s, they're locking all the nobility up in Versailles. and uh, It becomes a much larger uh, court and it's basically like Congress of the time, I guess, in some ways, but, um, so this leads us to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. Uh, so language being centralized, obviously, is a very powerful force, but so is history. And the documentation of the Anglo-Saxons' history was developed through Alfred's court in English, and it serves as an important source of history that survives to this day. Uh, it's one of the things that lifts us out of that notion of the Dark Ages. So Alfred had several copies made, and had them distributed to monasteries across the realm with instructions for them to continue to add to the chronicles. So, if you remember us talking about Bede, he's, you know, it's this very, like, um, matter-of-fact paragraph about what happened with this ruler, and then that led to this, then that led to this. That's sort of what the Anglo-Saxon chronicles read like, but it's incredibly important for our view, looking back, to understand what is important, Matt. Yeah, and and several of these manuscripts have even survived to this day. We don't think we've got the original, but you know this uh, sometimes trying to sort out like what version B says versus version F, right? Are are some of those challenges? But this has been an incredibly important piece of of uh, literature that have allowed us to reconstruct a lot of what happened in this era. So, so that leads us to the death of Alfred in eight ninety nine, Matt. Yeah, and by this time, you know, the Danes are somewhat contained, right? I mean, that doesn't mean there's no fighting. Uh, Wessex is now really holding primacy over the rest of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And and Mercia was already under de facto rule of Al- by Alfred's daughter, Alfelfled. Uh, so her husband, Lord Ethelred, seemed to have been de- um, incapacitated with some sort of injury in the early uh, 900s. And uh, Ethelflaed is really ruling in her own right and, and continues to rule even after his death. I mean, I think this is a notable piece of history that, you know, the Mercians don't go off and, you know, find the next lord or sub-king. They, they allow her to continue to rule as the lady of the Mercians uh, till the end of her life in, in 918. And, and through this time, she's really joining up with her brother. Edward, who's known in history as Edward the Elder, who uh, can, who took on Wessex and, and the full kingdom of the English as he takes the throne in 899 with the death of Alfred. So Edward continues in his father's footsteps with victories over the Vikings and further solidifies Wessex as the power base for the, quote, king of the English. 
And as we noted, this is supported by his sister, Ethel Fled. Um, Edward's reign continues until his death in 924, and his sons become successive kings through 955. So another 25 years or so. And his son, Ethelstan, bears special mention as a ruler who best continued the legacy of his grandfather, Alfred the Great. Now, Edward had 14 children. Ethelstan helped arrange dynastic marriages for his sisters to the royal families on the continent. And that gives us, Matt, a good segue to bring people up to speed on the events on the continent across the channel. That's right. So if we look first at his sixth child and his third oldest daughter, um, Edgifu, she she is married off to Charles the Simple. And this is probably as early as 917. So while, while Edward is actually still alive. Um, so if you remember at the end of our last episode, episode five, um, Charles the Fat was the sole remaining adult mayor, male heir in the uh, of Charlemagne, which gave him control of the entire Carolingian Empire. It didn't last long, and it wasn't really due to death. Uh, he was considered a weak ruler. He was having troubles with, of his own in fighting off the Viking raids in France and seemed to have probably suffered from some ongoing illnesses. So a, a coup was led against him in 887, which was just two years after we left off in the end of last episode when he had the consolidation of the empire. So it, it's just far too much detail to get into this episode to explain all the various power grabs that were going on. But uh, initially, the empire gets split into five separate kingdoms, um, which were not really ever reunited again until the age and conquests of Napoleon. Yeah, which so, is late 1700s. Yeah, and, and if you now remember Charles the Fat at that time was the only adult male heir remaining alive in 885, but there there was another. And oh. his name was also Charles because, you know, everybody needs to be named Charles or Louis in, in France. <laughs> <laughs> Much like William Edward and Henry in England. <laughs> yeah. So so he goes on to be known as Charles the Simple, and the epithet simple best translates like he was straightforward, not necessarily right. like, you know, simple-minded. Um, and he was born in 879 to the West Frankian king, Louis the Stammerer. When Charles the Fat is exiled, the West Franks uh, elect the Count of Paris named Odo to the throne, and he rules for 10 years until his death, and then finally Charles the Simple is deemed to be old enough and, and becomes king. Yeah, and during his early rule, he added Loth... Please help me with this name. Loth Lotharingia. Yes, to West Francia through the support of their noblemen. Um, now, at around the same time, he made an arrangement with a Viking invader named Rollo. You may have heard of Rollo because he was a great figure in history. Rollo was granted the Duchy of Normandy in return for his fealty and conversion to Christianity, and he took a Frankish daughter, Gisela, who may have been a younger daughter of Charles the Simple as, as a wife in negotiations. Uh, when his first wife died without a male heir in 917, he married Edgifu, who bore him a son named Louis. Now, however, Charles became unpopular and lost the support of his nobles, and he fought against rebels, lost, was imprisoned, and died six years later in 929. Edgifu and young Louis fled to Wessex and to the court of Edward. And so the next daughter of Edward to discuss is Ailhid, who married Hugh, the Count of Paris. And Hugh was the son of Robert who was the brother of King Odo of West Francia, who we briefly discussed. And Robert has been given the, the title Duke of the Franks due to his military prowess and importance. Now recall, this was the title that Charles Martel took to signify his power over the Franks in the Merovingian times. 
And then after Charles the Simple was deposed, Robert was elected king, but ruled for only a year before his death in battle in 923. These guys die and turn over so quick. That's why the <laughs> the guys who rule for like 40 years, uh, like <laughs> they 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 make an impact. Hugh was offered the crown at age 25, but passed it to Rudolph, the husband of his sister. And Hugh married Edhild in 926. He continued to amass power, land, and riches, though they do not have any children. So Rudolph died in 936, and we'll pick up that story next time. So finally, talk about the next Edgith. child. Yes, please pronounce yes, that name. The next daughter of Edward, the youngest, is Edgith, and, and she's married off to a gentleman named Otto. Uh, so when Charles the Fat was deposed of his rule, East Francia initially goes to uh, Arnulf, who helped lead the coup or really led the coup against Charles the Fat. Now, he was an illegitimate son of one of the other popular names that we ran into, Carloman, one of the Carlemans in, in our last episode. And we'll skip past all the details. And eventually there's a, a man named Henry the Fowler who's elected <laughs> king of East Francia in 919. I'd love now, to Otto know what type born. of I'd love to know what type of fouling he did. Like Henry the Fowler is <laughs> the worst name we've Charles the Simple's bad, but f- the Fowler is even worse. <laughs> so so he's elected king of East Francia in 919. Uh, Otto was born to Henry uh, a few years earlier in 912, which is the same year in which Henry inherited the Duke of Saxony. Um, so by 930, Edgith is married off to Otto. And he is now the heir apparent to East Francia, right? So if we kind of take a step back now in the year 935, we've got Ethelstan, grandson of Alfred the Great. He's king of the English, including the lands of the Danelaw, which are loyal to him. Louis, son of Charles and Ethelstan's sister Edgifu, are in exile in Wessex, but he's potentially an heir apparent to the the throne of, of West Francia. Ethelstan's next sister is married to the second most powerful man in West Francia. This is Hugh that we just talked about, who in history is referred to as Hugh the Great. And his other sister, Edgith, is married to the heir of the throne of East Francia. So I think it's really interesting to start to see these dynastic marriages, um, you know, and now we're having increasing talks of things like counts and dukes and and things like that, which, you know, these are terms that you know, everybody's heard, um, but we really haven't established what this all means yet to to kind of um you know bring it all home so so to do that chris let's let's take a quick detour to wrap this episode up with uh some some basic concepts of feudalism yeah because you see the changing the 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 power dynamics are starting to form that we will see for the next basically thousand years um through the the count system and feudalism and feudalism in its various forms um, usually emerged in locations as a result of the decentralization of an empire. So, especially in the Carolingian Empire in the 8th century AD, it, it lacked the bureaucratic infrastructure necessary to support cavalry without allocating land to those mounted troops. So, mounted soldiers began, began to secure a system of hereditary rule over their al- allocated land, and their power over the territory came to encompass the social, political, judicial, and economic spheres. It's not surprising that the person with the most powerful uh, military force in a locality gets to control everything. Um, however, once the infrastructure to maintain unitary power was reestablished, as with the European monarchies, feudalism began to yield this new power structure, and it eventually disappeared. So... You know, as kings would move in and say, I'm in charge now, you start to see the breakdown of feudalism. 
Yeah, that's right. And and again, no surprise that it kind of starts in the Carolingian Empire in the territory known as France. Um, the strongest elements of the the tie back to the Roman systems lived, you know, were were resident here in in France in the Frankish Kingdom. And so, even some of that goes back to the notions of I think we've mentioned the word federati, right? When the Germanic tribes were moving into Rome in the late Western Roman Empire. You know, to try to appease them, they would give them grants of land and in return provide military service. And so this concept of the back and forth between I'll give you land, you give me military service is really the foundational element for the notion of feudalism. Yeah, I mean, the, w- w- way back in episode one, we talked a lot about in the beginnings of the Roman system, the client system. Um, so we're going to focus more on the titles and kind of break down what some of these mean because we mentioned counts and thing and earls and things like that um because that's kind of foundational to the understanding of feudalism we'll dig into more how feudalism shaped the legal system later on but the key concept to understand is that it describes the general system and societal structure of the period so at a high level the king would grant lands to nobles in return for that loyalty military service and some form of tribute So that client patronage system that we talked about. So in turn, the nobility may further subdivide land to lower vassals who may have their own arrangement. So they they lease the land from the king and then they sublease it to somebody else. So at the bottom of this hierarchy would be the serfs or peasants. Now, this is all really important because that caste system essentially in England that really still somewhat exists. It class, class, it's breaking down now in the 20th century, 21st century. But the the position that you held in society was really, really important. Uh, and people are constantly fighting for land and, and position in England. So some of the titles of nobility would depend on the size or, or nature of their land or their fief. So it's worth noting that some of the land ownership had already evolved and aligned to this model, but in other cases, it followed this notion of being a fief more explicitly. So, Matt, talk about some of these titles. Yeah, so in general, right, and and this gets far more sophisticated and and intricate and complex as the centuries progress because um, the people in power want to f- create new things divide even <laughs> right. further right so they exactly. can give but, it away the lowest the lowest rank we should be aware of right now is is that of baron right and and barons are going to come up very significantly in, in some of the upcoming episodes here so barons held title across across one or more estates and notice notably um, you know, they would have less territory than which a count would hold, right? And within and within the regions of the count. So barons may have received land grants directly from the king, but they might have also received it from from a count. So the word the the name count, Chris, right, originally comes from the Latin word comes, which is really means companion. And that title was used in Roman times for the high-ranking officials, sometimes civil, sometimes military. And the French developed this notion of a county, which Mm. is, you know, a territory over which a count presides. Now, in England, the equivalent of a count, that word evolved to be an earl. So you've heard of earls. That's really just the English equivalent of a French count. Uh, And that is partially derived from the word word elderman, which was used in the Anglo-Saxon era, but probably more likely, you know, emerged from the old Danish word called Jorl, right? And so counties in Anglo-Saxon England were not called counties. They were called shires, which we've all heard of a shire. So that helps you understand what a shire actually is. It's the same notion of a county. 
Yeah, it's interesting that America ended up with counties and not shires. You know, I'm in I'm in Marion County. Uh, it's sort of interesting how that that developed. So the last for today is the Duke. A duke is sometimes, but not always, a member of the royal family and may rule over a duchy. Now, a duchy in some cases has a degree of sovereignty. A duke comes from the Latin dux, which dates back to the Roman Republic and was expanded as a key role in Diocletian. Diocletian's reforms where the title was given to the military leader of a province. That's right. And and we just mentioned Hugh uh, taking on the title Duke of the Franks and Charles Martel taking the doodle of, uh, title of Duke of the Franks. Like those were not through land grants. That was really through their military power taking the title of Duke. But as again, we'll see over coming episodes and generally speaking, when we start talking about Duke of this, Duke of that, it means they're ruling over a duchy, right? Which is somewhat of an independent sub kingdom of a, a larger kingdom, or in, in some cases, um, it, it's essentially the same thing as a sovereign kingdom, except that has not yet converted to Christianity. So they, the ruler has not been anointed or crowned or, or in, blessed and endorsed by the Pope to be re- worthy of receiving the title king. And where do women fit in all this? Well, <laughs> you heard that you were part of negotiations. Uh, they were not part of this power structure, but they did wield immense power in both their influence over the people that they, they ruled with and also as, uh, you know, just basically merging powers, merging these dukedoms, merging these counts and earldoms. Yeah. And we will see, uh, thankfully, some some very interesting and powerful women who um, wield some some you know significant influence behind the scenes. Some incredibly politically savvy, and so we will certainly highlight uh, some of those amazing women as we go through the next uh, few episodes. Well, really, all the rest of the episodes. So that's it for today, Chris. All right. Well, it was uh, great to catch up and talk to you today. Thank you so much for listening to the History of Modern Politics. We appreciate you being here. If you enjoy the show, please spread the word. And we will see you again in two weeks.